We will be on our way to fulfilling our mission to glorify God by helping people know Jesus and make Him known in D.C. and around the world. Those four things that we see in God's Word are equip, serve, pray, and go. So we want to equip. We want to teach disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. Uh, we want to pray. We want to devote ourselves to desperate, confident prayer, knowing that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So we must pray. There's nothing we can do in our own strength. We want to serve. We want to selflessly serve the neediest among us as Jesus taught us to do. We want to wash the feet of the people around us. And then we want to go. We want to send and support church planters and missionaries both locally and globally. And we believe if we're doing those four things, if those are habits of our church, if they're a regular part of the rhythm of what we do, then we will know Jesus and make him known in D.C. and around the world. And this morning... We're looking at go. We're taking one week to look at each aspect of those uh, four components of our strategy. And this morning we're looking at go. If you've been around Pillar DC for any length of time, then you know that missions is a major emphasis for our church. It's something that we talk about a lot. It's right there in our mission statement, knowing Jesus and making him known around the world, in DC and around the world. But perhaps maybe you've, you've asked yourself or you've wondered sometimes why. Why, why is that such a, an emphasis here at this church? Is, is that just an image we want to portray or a niche we want to fit into? Is, is missions our shtick? You know how you know, like some churches are all about social justice and some churches are all about missions and some churches are all about feeding the hungry, you know, whatever. And that, that's just our thing. And you can kind of pick from any number of things and kind of have your brand as a church. Well, I would submit to you that no, missions is not our shtick, and it's not just something that we, uh, want, we want to have an image to portray. We emphasize missions because we believe that the Bible emphasizes missions. The primary purpose of the church is to go and make disciples of all nations. Missions is not a program in the church. Missions is the central purpose of the church. Missions is the central purpose of the church. And few passages drive this home better than Psalm chapter 67, which is where we're going to be this morning. Um, if you uh, don't have, uh, we don't have few Bibles, do we, Thomas? So, yeah, so hopefully you have your Bible with you. If you don't have one, then you can look it up on your phone. Uh, we will have few Bibles. But if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 67. And it's a, it's a short chapter, and we're going to go ahead and read the entire psalm. And then after I'm done reading, I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive in. Psalm chapter 67. Here's what God's Word says. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make His face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let me pray. Lord, 
I thank you so much for your word and that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That your word has the power to, uh, to save us and to transform us, to make us more like Christ. I thank you that, um, that when we're weak, that you're strong, Lord. And so I pray that you would be with me now as I teach and help me. I pray that you would speak through me and speak through your word to your people. That you would build this church up as we look at Psalm 67 and, and really look at the, the purpose for which you've blessed us. And I pray for people in this room that don't know you, Lord. In a room this size, I know there are some in here that, that don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that you would do a miracle in, in their heart and give them eyes to see, ears to hear the gospel, that they would believe and be saved and be made new, made into a new creation. Lord, we need your help this morning. I, I need your help to teach your word, and we need your help to even be able to understand and listen to your word. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. So I invite you now, God, to come be with us We'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first truth I want to draw your attention to in Psalm 67 is that God desires the praise of all peoples. We see that really clearly emphasized here in the psalm. Not just Jews, but people from among every tribe and tongue and nation. God desires the praise of all peoples. I don't know if you noticed, but verses 3 and 5 are word for word identical. And this repetition is, is a common literary device in poetry meant to help emphasize something important that the author wants to communicate. So verses 3 and 5 both say, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That is an expression not only of the heart of God, but also the heart of God's people. These spirit-inspired psalms were originally written to be sung by Jewish worshipers in the synagogue and so we cry out in agreement with the holy spirit let the peoples praise you O god we sang that in the very first song that we that we sung this morning let the peoples praise you O god and we sing that because he's worthy of the praise of all peoples everywhere is the the central thrust of this psalm and really of the entire bible is that God intends to be praised and known and feared and enjoyed by people from among all nations. We see that right here in the text. In verse 2, we learn that God wants to be known as He truly is. It says that your way may be known on the earth. God wants the peoples to know that He is the one true God. God is a God who reveals himself to us because he wants to be known. He's revealed himself to us in his word, and he's revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then verses 3 to 5, we see here that God desires and even demands the praise of all peoples. He wants to be known and he wants to be praised because he's worthy of the praise of all peoples because there is nothing and no one like him. And then in verse 4, we see not only does God desire to be known and praised, he wants to be enjoyed by all peoples. Look at verse 4. It says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So God does not want people to begrudgingly praise him or to praise him 
for fear that he might crush them if they don't. God wants to be enjoyed. Uh, In Pastor John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he summarizes the goal of missions by pointing right here to Psalm 67. He says this, he says, The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. God is jealous for the praise of all peoples because he is worthy of our praise. But this is not a selfish kind of jealousy because it's actually in knowing and enjoying and praising God that we find our greatest joy. You see, there is nothing that God could give us greater than himself. There's nothing more precious or fulfilling or beautiful or valuable than God. So if God were to give us anything less than himself, he would be doing us a disservice. He would not be leading us to our greatest joy. This would not be loving. So the most loving thing God could possibly do is lead us into knowing and praising and fearing and enjoying him. That's an act of love from God. The greatest gift God can give the nations is the gift of himself. God wants to be known and praised and enjoyed. And then verse 7, we learn that God wants to be feared. It says, let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, this is not talking about a slavish type of fear. This is a, a, a reverence or an awe. To fear God is to honor him and to relate to him as he truly is. The King of Kings, the Creator of the universe, the one who gives us and sustains our life. So if we understand God as He truly is, then we will relate to Him in such a way that we understand that we are the creature, He's the Creator, and there's a sense of of awe and reverence that we ought to have of Him because His power and His glory and His majesty far surpass anything that words could even describe. And so we approach him with, with, yes, with a joy. We enjoy him, but we also approach him with trembling, knowing that this God is infinitely holy, worthy of reverence. We don't just waltz casually into his presence like he's our buddy or like one of us. No, he's worthy of our worship. And what's amazing and what's sad is that in many areas around the world, including our own country, God is not known or praised or enjoyed or feared. And this leads to our second point that not only does God desire the praise of all peoples, God deserves the praise of all peoples. You see, God is not one God among a pantheon of other contending gods, He is the only God. Consider what Psalm 67 teaches us about Him. Verse 2 teaches us that God is all powerful. Verse 2 says that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. It expresses this desire that God's saving power might be known. And we just finished up a series walking through the book of Exodus. And one of the primary themes in, in the Exodus is God's purpose in making known his saving power, not only to the people of Israel, but also to Egypt and to the nations. God says, for example, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, He says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out or deliver the sons of Israel from their midst. Why does God save us? Why did God deliver the people of Israel? That His saving power 
might be known, so that the Egyptians and the nations will know that He is the Lord. After Pharaoh and all his chariots were swallowed up by the Red Sea, there was no doubt that Yahweh is the one true God. And all the gods of Egypt were false gods. So God saved Israel in such spectacular fashion, not only to rescue Israel, but to flex his saving power among the nations. The psalm also teaches us that God is all-powerful and he is perfectly just. Look at verse 4. It says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. God is the only rightful judge of all the earth, and he promises to judge the earth fairly. Let me read you another quote from John Piper. He says this, he says, When the judgment of the nations comes, God will not be partial. No one will be condemned for the color of his skin or the size of his brain, or the place of his birth, or the quality of his ancestry. No bribes will be considered, no sophisticated plea bargaining. All will proceed on the basis of God's unimpeachable righteousness. God is a righteous, fair judge. We will all be judged by the same standard, and that standard is perfect righteousness. The problem, of course for all of us, is that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. That's what Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says. And many people are confident that they can do enough good works to appease God on judgment day. But they underestimate God's holiness and their own sin. There will only be one standard by which we will be judged, and that's the perfect righteousness of God. And there is not one person in this room or in this entire planet who can honestly say, I've attained that. I've reached that. God is infinitely holy. To sin against an infinitely holy God is to incur an infinite debt that we could never repay. On our own merit, every one of us deserves condemnation and death. We're simply unable to measure up to God's standard of righteousness. Our only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is that Jesus does measure up. Jesus is perfectly righteous. He fulfilled the law where we failed, and then he died the death that we deserve. On the cross, the reason that Jesus died on the cross is that on that cross, as Jesus suffered and died, the wrath of God owed towards guilty sinners like you and me was poured out upon his son so that we could receive forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God and become co-heirs with Christ and have eternal life with him. That's the good news of the gospel. It's an amazing gift that's offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way we can be saved. It's not by our own effort. It's not by our own merit. It's not about how many times you go to church or how many good deeds you do in society. That will do you nothing on Judgment Day. The only way you can stand before God blameless is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and to stop trusting in your own works. Have you done that? What are you trusting in this morning as you stand before God on Judgment Day? What's your hope going to be in? If you were to die today, or if Jesus were to come, come back today, what would you point to as the reason that you could stand guiltless before God? 
If your answer is anything else other than the perfect righteousness of Jesus, I've placed my faith in Him, then right now you are in peril. And I urge you to turn away from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus this morning, not in your own works. God is perfectly righteous. Here's the deal. If you have done that, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then we do not need to fear judgment day. We don't need to, to, to fear the day when we stand before God because our judgment day happened at the cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus paid our debt. He paid it all. His blood is sufficient to cover all of your sin. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In fact, we can joyfully look forward to the day that Christ judges the earth because on that day, Satan and evil and all who hate God will be judged. Every injustice, every wrong will be righted. All the effects of sin, the collateral damage of our sin will be reversed and Jesus will make all things new. And the reality of this coming judgment day ought to compel us to go and proclaim to all peoples that the perfectly righteous God of all creation is coming to judge the earth. And all peoples and all nations are invited to repent and to believe and to be saved from the coming wrath of God upon evil. Our righteous judge deserves the praise of all peoples. He's all-powerful, he's perfectly just, and then Psalm 67 also teaches that he's gracious. Why does God deserve the praise of all peoples? He's all-powerful, he's perfectly just, and he is gracious. Psalm 67 verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. This is a, a, a restatement of what's called the Aaronic blessing from Numbers chapter 6 where God pronounces a blessing on his people. Now, why would God show such favor towards his people? Why would he pour such extravagant grace on us? Why would he provide salvation and protection and provision for people who so often are, are, are quick to ignore him and quick to worship other things besides him and quick to get consumed with all sorts of things in this life besides worshiping and honoring God? It's not because we deserve it. God pours out blessings upon his people because it's his nature to be gracious. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Every single day, we are confronted with billions of examples of God's common grace on all mankind. Brothers and sisters, we live in a city filled with people who hate God. We live in a city filled with people who want nothing to do with God and His Word, and yet the sun rose again over Washington, D.C. this morning. And yet, God continues to send the rain on Washington, D.C., month in and month out. God continues to provide shelter. He continues to provide food. He continues to put breath in the very lungs of people who want to pour out curses on him. Why? Because God is gracious. He's merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's patient. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is who he is. That's how he reveals himself to be in his word. And as we just talked about, it doesn't just stop there. Not only does God uh, exp 
that not only does God pour out common grace on all people, but God more fully display, displays His grace by forgiving guilty sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't need to look any further for evidence as to whether God is gracious than the cross of Christ. At the cross, the perfect Son of God died the death we deserved. And this wasn't an accident. Jesus wasn't just a martyr. Psalm, or Isaiah 53.10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's plan from before the foundations of the earth is that his only son Jesus would come and die on the cross for our sins. That his wrath would be poured about, out upon Jesus instead of us so that we could receive this free gift of grace. That kind of grace is breathtaking. And God does not want the knowledge of that grace to stop with you or with me. He desires and deserves the praise of all peoples. He wants people from every tribe and tongue and nation to know that He is all-powerful, perfectly just, and infinitely gracious.